Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The American Bar Association is calling for the Supreme Court to adopt the Judicial Ethics Code as the court faces plummeting public opinion, an unresolved leak investigation, and a wave of ethics concerns, none of which the Chief Justice has addressed head-on. Chief Justice John Roberts has spoken only twice publicly in the past year behind closed-door audiences of fellow judges, lawyers, and judicial staff at federal circuit court conferences. The only reference he made to the public disapproval of the court was to say that Supreme Court decisions in controversial cases have always been subject to intense criticism, but it's a mistake to call into question the legitimacy of the court. The legitimacy of the court uh, uh, rests uh, on the fact that it satisfies the requirements of the, of the statute uh, and that uh, the Constitution needs, as John Marshall put it, somebody to say what the law is, and that's the role of the Supreme Court. I don't understand the connection between opinions that people disagree with and the legitimacy of the court. Uh, if the court doesn't uh, uh, retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, um, I'm not sure who would. Joining me is an expert in constitutional law, David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law School. How would you describe the Chief Justice's response to the unresolved leak investigation, the ethics concerns raised about Justice Thomas's wife, and the low public approval of the court? I think the Chief Justice is trying to keep all of these things in-house with the court and avoid public scrutiny and criticism. His strategy seems to be focused largely on public perception rather than on getting at the underlying problem. Roberts has said time and again that the court isn't political. It exists separate from the political branches. But it seems like the court has become political in the way it makes decisions recently. Is that something that he should address? I'm not sure that there's much he can do. It is in his interest to have the court regarded as being above politics, so he's going to keep saying that. But the fact is that at least five of the justices are voting pretty consistently along ideological lines and disregarding precedent, indeed disregarding some of their own precedent when the implications affect their political preferences in different ways. There's nothing that the Chief Justice can do to obscure that fact. The most he can do is vote against some of the more politicized decisions which he has, but his vote doesn't matter. I remember uh, back in 2018, after former President Trump called judges partisan, 
Roberts did speak out and he said, you know, there are not Obama judges or Trump judges. So why wouldn't he do something similar now when, you know, public approval of the court is so low and there are so many issues surrounding the court outside of the decisions that it makes? Because he can't do very much about them. The only people he's really accountable to are the other eight justices, and they are not supportive of his doing the kinds of things that it would take to resolve these questions. One of them either leaked the opinion or likely has staff who did and may be aware of that. He certainly isn't going to get support for exposing that from the guilty party. He did as much of an investigation as he could uh, without going outside of the building or ruffling the justice's feathers. On the ethics matter, there have been ethics issues raised before about justices, and there is not an effective outside means of addressing it unless it rises to the level that the other justices are themselves willing to take action against one of their own, which is very rare, then he doesn't have much leverage there either. Is the way he handled the leak investigation sort of symptomatic of his approach? He had someone inside the court investigate instead of, as you mentioned, outside agency like the FBI, so he could control it. And I wonder if he really wanted to find out who leaked the draft opinion or if in fact, he did find out and just hasn't told us. I would be surprised if his bad faith rose to that level. I think he wanted to find out, but not so badly as to anger other justices. So, for example, it appears the investigation only looked at staff, not justices. And to look at justices would create a lot of unpleasantness and discomfort within the nine, and he was unwilling to do that. If, as many people have speculated, the leak was by a justice, then this isn't going to find it. Because he was only looking at people who weren't justices, I think he found a staff member who leaked it. He probably would have released that. But my suspicion from this is that the leak was a justice, and he's not prepared to deal with the blowback that he would get from exposing such a justice if he knows who it was. Some of the justices seem to be having a sort of debate in public by responding to what others have said in their public appearances. So Robert said the mere disagreement with a ruling is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. And then two weeks later, Justice Kagan seemed to be replying to him almost, saying that Americans are bound to lose confidence in a court that looks like an extension of the political process. Does it seem as if there's some some problem among the justices? Well, I agree with both of those statements. So it's not necessarily a debate. There are many decisions of the court recently and otherwise that I disagree with, but whose legitimacy I accept. My job is teaching law students such decisions. So I think the Chief Justice is right. But I think what Justice Kagan is saying is that the problems here are much broader than just disagreeing with the opinions. They rise to the level of believing that the opinions are politicized. And I think she's right about that as well. There was this unprecedented delay in issuing the first opinion of the term. And 
Justice Kavanaugh blamed it recently on the mix of cases that the justices heard in October and November. Do you think it's more than just that? I think it is probably more or less what Justice Kavanaugh said. Now, how that mix affects what the court does is another matter. Tradition on the court is that they don't issue opinions until any justices who want to write dissenting opinions have finished. With a solid 6-3 supermajority of conservatives, they won't have any trouble getting to a majority on politically charged cases, but they may have felt that they needed to wait for the dissenters to finish, or there may have been a back and forth. Typically, once a dissent has been circulated, the justices in the majority want to change the majority to respond to the dissent. The dissenters often then want to further change their dissent to respond to the new points in the majority opinion, and that process could have taken quite a while. That wouldn't be surprising on a polarized court. After the leak, Justice Clarence Thomas said something to the effect that the trust is gone and you're looking over your shoulder. But does it seem as if it's it's such a different court than the court was, you know, a few years ago when Justice Scalia was on the court? It's not the same. It's not the same because there are no longer any meaningful swing votes. In a certain sense, the Chief Justice is a swing vote but he swings between a 6-3 and 5-4 conservative majority. He doesn't change the outcome. Once in a great while, one of the other justices will part company with their colleagues, and if two of them do, then you may have a different result, but that almost never happens. I think oral argument, therefore, feels less lively because there are fewer doubts about how the cases are going to come out with the supermajority. In a 2016 New England School of Law event, Roberts said the framers established a court in a way that we would not care about that criticism, explaining his approach to dealing with criticism of the court, which is not to deal with it, I guess. Do you agree with his interpretation of the framers' intent? I think his approach is too simplistic. The framers did not intend for justices to entrench themselves on the court for long periods and take politicized actions to reverse the results of election. The first two chief justices served for only a few years each. Most of the justices from the original period served very brief terms. Chief Justice Marshall departed from that serving for a very long time. But if you can judge original intent by what the early justices did, they saw it as a a temporary role, not one where they could be thrown out by the public if their decisions weren't popular, but also not one where justices appointed long, long ago would continue to hand down decisions. So this is a very different court from the founders and the notion that the court would be impervious to election results and indeed would strike down laws passed by majorities voted in by the public is certainly not an original concept. Indeed, the idea that the Supreme Court could strike down laws Congress passed at all was not part of the original document in the Constitution. It was added later in Marbury versus Madison by Chief Justice Marshall. Should the Supreme Court justices have a judicial ethics code, all other federal judges follow one, and why should judges with the most power to affect the country and the law be exempt? It seems counterintuitive, and 
I know the American Bar Association passed a resolution urging the high court to adopt ethics rules. Why do they resist? They resist because they can. (laughs) Uh, No one is in a position to impose it on them, but there really is no defense for them doing that. Uh, I suppose the argument would be that if there's an ethics code, um, then people could use ethics allegations to try to influence what judges do. But that's true on any court. And there are methods for punishing bad faith accusations, whether against judges or anybody else. Uh, There really is no justification for not having an ethics code. Uh, And when justices have done things that call their impartiality into question, yet Justice Fortas working closely with the Johnson administration at the same time he was deciding cases that involved that administration, or uh, Justice Scalia being personally close to uh, sitting vice president, or the matters uh, being raised now, there is a strong interest in the court to have these matters resolved around clear lines, but there's not a strong interest in individual justices for that. Could Congress force a code, a judicial code on the justices, or it's just totally up to them? I think there's an argument Congress could do that. There are some state constitutions that give the high court absolute control over the judiciary. Uh, That's not as clear in Article 3 of the federal constitution. So I think it is entirely possible that Congress could do that. Congress may limit the court's jurisdiction, and if it can do that, it could say that the court does not have jurisdiction to hear any case uh, in which a justice uh, has a conflict of interest but has failed to recuse him or herself. I mean, does the chief justice have any power beyond what any other justice has? He does have some powers, but I'm not sure whether they help. He can, for example... In any decision where he's in the majority, he can write the opinion if he wants to. Um, And he could write more moderate, more precedent-honoring opinions uh, on some of these cases if he's in the majority. But that's not going to deal with the fundamental concerns people have, that the outcome or the winners in these cases are ordained by politics. There have been, you know, a lot of suggestions about ways to change the court, you know, to pack the court, to add term limits. What's your take on whether or not something should be done to change the court in that way? I think things should be done to change the court. I absolutely think that. But I don't like the proposals that are currently popular. I've actually uh, written an article on what I think should be done. I think the proper approach is to adopt the one that New York State has, which is a nonpartisan commission picking a set of candidates for each position. And uh, if the president chooses one of those candidates, then they can go through the Senate without a filibuster. The president would be free to nominate someone else, but that person would not have protection against a filibuster. That would get us more moderate Democrats and more moderate Republicans, and we'd go back to having genuine swing votes on the court. Thanks, David. That's Professor David Super of Georgetown Law School. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. In the wake of the shooting down of a Chinese spy balloon over the coast of South Carolina and three other objects, lawmakers are beginning to look toward how these kinds of surveillance efforts should be handled between the U.S. and China, including through the data collection of companies like TikTok. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Republican Representative James Comer, said Congress shouldn't rule out further restrictions on these companies, particularly on how data is gathered. It's a concern for uh, high-level people uh, in the government because with that data, uh, ByteDance can, can tell where you are. If you're using TikTok, they know where your location is. So that would be a concern. And TikTok is facing a growing number of class action lawsuits that its in-app browser illegally tracks users' clicks and keystrokes in violation of a federal wiretap law, a claim that will test novel privacy litigation issues. The suits say that TikTok could become privy to private information, such as a user's credit card accounts, mental health, or sexual preferences. Joining me is privacy and class action attorney David Strait, a partner at DiCello and Levitt. There are nearly one dozen proposed class actions across five states that have been filed against TikTok since November. Can you explain the basis of these actions, you know, the causes of action? Yes, briefly speaking... All of these complaints allege that TikTok is injecting a script as a JavaScript code into the websites that are being visited through the TikTok app. And this script allows for session replay. So this is not you know, the traditional sort of tracking across the Internet where the actual website, you know, the URL with the IP address, maybe the file path, would be recorded by a third party. The session replay code allows the recipient of the information to observe right down to the keystroke of what's going on on those websites. So these cases all allege that TikTok is violating numerous laws, including the wiretap law, which forbid the interception of communications over the wires in flight, meaning real-time contemporaneous communications, without the consent of at least one party to the communication or a court order. 
what kind of information is TikTok allegedly mining? Do we know? Well, when you say mining, it's unclear what use TikTok is making of the data. Typically, when a third party monitors Internet use, the data is not simply stored in the file. Uh, Typically, inferences are made, right? So profiles are created and inferences are made based on one's activity, where one visits from where, who you are, what sort of activity is done. So while I don't know what precisely TikTok is using with the data, we do have a sense of what data is being gathered through the app when users click on links that bring them to first-party websites. And what would that be? So the session replay script allows more than just the gathering of the URL. So it would be, for example, forms that are filled out. It could be navigating the website uh, from page to page, deeper and deeper down. It can be choices that are made on the website, information that's provided into uh, various places on the website, into forms, etc. It can be fairly profound what information can be gathered. So, for example, if a person is filling out a health form, all that personal information is entered. Now, are these claims by the plaintiffs novel claims, or are they claims that have been tried before in, in a kind of a different way? So session replay is fairly new. You know, there were some interesting articles published as early as 2017 on this topic. So it's not a new technology this year. It's been around for a while. But the claims are based on older tried and true claims. The Wiretap Act, originally passed by Congress in 1968, applied to telephone calls. That's the traditional, you know, 1960s and 1970s style, you know, bugging of a phone. You see these in the movies. But then in the early 1980s, it was understood that an increasing number of communications were happening by computer and, and through you know, this emerging technology, which became known as the Internet. So in 1986, the Wiretap Act was updated to include computer communications. It was uh, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which then uh, updated and incorporated the old Wiretap Act. So we're going back now decades. It's understood that the interception of communications, even over computers can be a wiretap violation. So in in these cases, we have wiretap act claims, and those are long ago held to apply to internet communications by design in the statute. And certainly the interception of a URL, even just a link to a website, assuming it's not just the IP address, I'll give you a hypothetical, www.cnn.com, well, that may or may not be the content of a communication that would give rise to a wiretap claim. But certainly deeper into the website when you're talking about articles that are viewed on CNN.com, certainly search queries and other activities on the website, absolutely those would be content of a communication and therefore implicating a possible wiretap claim. Here, because we have session replay technology, we're talking not just about the URL visited, the clicking on the link and then visiting the website, you know, through the the TikTok app, the, you know, the in-app browser. But we're talking about activities on the website that would then allegedly be captured by the session replay technology. So in that sense, it's not a new novel claim, but it is the extension of existing well-accepted application of the Wiretap Act to the interception of communications on the internet. Do users of these kinds of apps have an expectation of privacy? Yes, absolutely. That is a given. So there's no question 
that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in one's internet browsing, certainly the aggregation of the browsing. The Ninth Circuit in particular has been out front, and so finding not too many courts at this point would disagree. Certainly, multiple studies have confirmed that uh, although you may be sharing your internet browsing with a particular website, that particular visit, the aggregation of your web browsing across multiple sites, absolutely is an expectation of privacy there. Even if we're talking about you know, what's tr- traditionally thought of as non-sensitive websites that you go to you know, uh, walmart.com to buy a towel, there may, some people may say, well, is that really a private issue? Well, it is. In fact, Congress said so. That's why the Wiretap Act exists, that private communications, there's absolutely a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that's why the original Wiretap Act was passed. Once we start talking about the aggregation of your web browsing, no question that's generally accepted there'd be a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, your question specifically, does that expectation of privacy continue within the TikTok app, specific to TikTok? I would say yes. Certainly, these cases that are being filed would say yes. But that reasonable expectation is not a precondition to the application of the Wiretap Act. All that's necessary is that there be the interception of a communication across the wires in flight, and communication includes the content of the communication without consent, full stop, that's the claim. So that's why these claims under the Wiretap Act are so powerful, because we don't need to ask the question of whether a reasonable person has an expectation of privacy or whether an individual plaintiff might have an expectation of privacy. The Wiretap Act doesn't care. It simply says the interception was unlawful. A TikTok spokesperson said, we do not collect keystroke or text inputs through this JavaScript code. It's only used for debugging, troubleshooting, and performance monitoring. Is there a clear way for them to prove that? There'll be two ways that they can pursue that defense. First of all, I'm not quite sure whether that's a complete defense to what's being alleged. Even if what they're saying is true to the letter of their defense, I'm not sure that would be a complete defense anyway. We would have to look at the terms of service and the privacy policy and other governing documents and see whether that defense would work, whether that limited gathering or limited use of the gathering would be permissible. So I don't know the details there, but there are two places where that defense could be raised. One could be at the, at the motion to dismiss phase. For the non-lawyers listening, the motion to dismiss phase is testing the legal sufficiency of the allegations where the court will have to assess If it's true what's being alleged, is the allegation legally sufficient to raise this claim? It's not usually appropriate at this stage for the defendant to say, but I don't do that. Sometimes there can be some allegations that are so outlandish or so obviously wrong. They can be defended at the motion to dismiss phase, but usually not. Typically, a defense of, but I didn't do it, um, is done later in the case after discovery, after defendants have an opportunity to see if they're telling the truth. So the evaluation at the first stage is, what is the basis of the information? Is it just information and belief? Is it through testing? What is the credibility at a very basic level? And then the case proceeds to discovery. Then there's a second opportunity that the defendant will have. And here it's multiple defendants. will have the opportunity after discovery to say, hey, you haven't proven your case. That No reasonable jury could believe your version of the facts. So that would be a motion for summary judgment after the uh, parties had an opportunity to test the claims. One of the law firms involved here wants to consolidate nine of the cases and to multi-district litigation. 
does it seem like there is so much similarity in the allegations that they should be consolidated? Well, the, the judicial panel on multi-district litigation will ultimately make that decision. And the focus is typically on efficiencies and discovery. And you know, there's, I think some people who aren't in the industry may not understand that technically speaking, if a case goes to trial, the, the cases then become disaggregated and sent back to their home district. That's a very rare situation. But the focus on the uh, the grouping of the cases together and then transferring them to a common court, that is actually done for efficiency in discovery. So that the same executive, for example, only testifies once so that documents can be produced in an efficient manner among the cases. In fact, even if the JPML, the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation, even if they were to decide the cases are related enough to consider them together and transfers them all to a, a single court. That does not necessarily mean they have to be consolidated into a single case. There are many cases where they're simply related and that they are coordinated. So and that's a decision that the transferee court will have to make, whether they should be consolidated or simply coordinated. And TikTok is arguing that the lawsuit should be included in an already settled multi-district litigation action in Illinois. I mean, is that a, a wild kind of argument? It's unusual. I mean, certainly it's not a, a normal thing for a settlement agreement to settle claims for past behavior and future behavior. So to the extent that any of these cases overlap with the settled case for actions that were done prior to the date of the settlement or prior to the date of the preliminary approval, or even prior to the date of the final approval, then the question will be whether the settlement substantively covers the actions that are challenged in these cases. But to the extent that the offending activity or allegedly offending activity occurred after one of those dates, that's a little more unusual. The idea that a settlement can say, we put a force field around the defendant for even future behavior is very, very unusual and was, is not likely to be looked at kindly by too many courts. Are the plaintiffs going to have troubles here once they do? You mentioned the discovery phase. Once they do reach the discovery phase, are they going to have trouble getting discovery from TikTok, which is based in China? Whenever there's a case where evidence is located outside of the borders of the United States, Naturally, there are challenges, and the challenges are, are multifaceted. First of all would be documents. That's the easiest question because documents can easily be transferred. Then you have the question of, well, what, if, what about depositions? Some countries are less amenable to depositions of individuals because that's, that's more of an American thing. Many countries allow depositions, but not to the same extent that, that the United States does. To get that type of evidence uh, located abroad, there are conventions that can be used. The Hague Convention is the most common to get access to that evidence. But we're talking about China. It's a different issue. It, the complication that one always faces whenever evidence is located outside the United States is even more complex when you're talking about China specifically. And one thing that we also have to remember is that these documents may or may not be, or evidence may or may not be taken at deposition in the language other than English. I'm not familiar with the language of business at TikTok, but that's always an issue whenever you have international litigation. You have these, you know, nearly a dozen proposed class actions. 
are you expecting to see more similar class actions or a respite until some of these cases get a little farther along? I don't know whether others will be filed. Typically at this phase, uh, given that we're, we're now a couple of months into the process, you would expect to see the pace fall off, and we have seen the pace fall off. That does not preclude other people from filing. Um, but at this phase, um, if new claims are brought, typically you would see them include additional allegations or additional claims that weren't brought before. Uh, there may be some firms doing additional uh, investigations, and those would likely be the basis for, for new claims being filed. But just because the the panel is now looking at the motion for centralization does not preclude new cases from being brought. You might see more. You know, we've heard a lot from regulators, government officials, concern about TikTok and China's access to the U.S. user data. Do you expect to see more state enforcement against the app? Well, certainly the fact that this is TikTok, leave aside the technology that's allegedly being used, the session replay technology, leaving that aside, leaving aside the wiretap claims in particular, we're talking about a defendant that is right now very much in the sights of Congress, state legislatures, regulators at the federal level and state level. It's a fairly well-known defendant this year. um, And given also what's happened recently, and it's still going on with spy balloons and other unidentified objects, and there's a bit of heightened tension specifically with Chinese spying or alleged spying, there's no way to separate out you know, the Chinese base of TikTok from these stories. It's impossible. So that will absolutely be a factor. How it plays out, I have no way of knowing. But the analysis of these cases cannot be divorced from the current geopolitical situation. Now, will states also get involved? I think it would be impossible that every state would stay out whether it be through legislative action or regulatory action, I just can't imagine that for the next year, no state gets involved in trying to regulate TikTok. Oh, I think you're right. You know how the state attorney generals love to get involved. This is an important case to watch. You know, it's rare for a series of class actions like this to be touching on so many issues. It'll keep a lot of people interested, even people who are traditionally not involved in the class action space or not typically involved in data privacy space, just because of the national security issues. And also, let's not forget, something like half of all TikTok users are under 18. That absolutely is going to be a relevant issue here. There are so many issues at play that I think this will remain in in the press and in the headlines uh, for the duration of the case. Thanks, David. That's David Strait, a partner to Cello Levitt. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. 
Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 